You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On Vikings. I'm your host, your pal in the Kitty Copied Off in Math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, what have you, or you can simply ask your smart device to play podcast Locked On Vikings. And today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. If you go to BuiltBar.com and enter promo code LOCKEDON at checkout, you get 10 bucks off of your first order. And before we get into the episode today, a real quick word about uh, Friday. I told you on Wednesday and Thursday, of course, on Thursday we did the big roundtable with all of the black hosts of Locked On Podcast talking about their experiences being black people in America. Uh, you should definitely go listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, a lot of you have, and I know that because of your tweets, and I love you for it. That is awesome. Uh... I did say I was going to do like a bonus show on Friday to kind of make up for lost time. Unfortunately, a personal matter came up and I wasn't able to get around to that. I'm not going to go into too much more about what that was, but uh, suffice it to say I had to keep my house in order. But I am back. It is a new week and uh, it's time to talk about some Viking stuff. So I want to start today with a story and it's a story of Josh Metellus. He's a sixth round safety out of Michigan and his story in Michigan is really, really fun. So he grew up going to Flanagan High School in Pembroke Pines, Florida, and he went there with a guy you may have heard of named Devin Bush, plays for the Steelers now. And Devin Gill, who just transferred to South Florida. And this kind of trio has been together since high school. They all played together at Flanagan High School in Pembroke Pines, Florida. And when they were going through recruitment, uh, a couple of things happened. So Michigan actually hired Devin Bush Sr., the father of Devin Bush Jr., the Steeler now. Uh, so that was already a reason for them to go and, and check it out and, and be recruited. And so when all three of these guys are like on campus and they're touring, and, and you know, a lot of you have probably been there, you're touring a, co a college campus, you're thinking about it, and you're kind of just trying to, to get a feel for what you'd like, they end up in the dorm room of Jabril Peppers, now, of course, on the the uh, New York Giants. They also hung out with Willie Henry. He plays for the 49ers now and just all of these like crazy Michigan, I mean, all these Michigan defensive players that have been funneling into the NFL the last like four or five years. Uh, they're all hanging out in this, this, this dorm room on the Michigan campus playing PS4. Willie Henry is kicking the crap out of everybody else in the room. And in that, they find this brotherhood, this beautiful camaraderie that that turns out to define Michigan. And you even see it highlighted in uh, All or Nothing, I believe a season from 2017 or 2018 that followed the Michigan Wolverines. I think it was 2017 because it was the year right after Ben Gedeon had left and a couple other seniors had like very famously left in the 2017 draft. And, you know, they were like trying to replace them. And Josh Metellus was one of those young kids that was being uh, called upon in the 2017 season to step up. But it doesn't really turn out that way. And if you remember that 2017 uh, Michigan squad was not a particularly memorable one. Uh, and Josh Metellus did not have a great year. It, a lot of this can be exemplified in their game against Penn State that year, where Penn State very specifically targeted the safeties in coverage and absolutely blew out the Wolverines. And that was a bit of a wake-up call for Josh Metellus. That was this moment where he thought, okay, I got to take my practice habits more seriously. I got to change my 
mentality. I've got to change the way I work. I've got to change the way I approach the game. And he started getting this dog mentality, you know, those those like dog defensive backs. And I talk about that a lot. Guys that are going to y- yap at you, guys that are going to jaw and trash talk and just try to get in your head and do any possible thing they can to get an advantage. And a lot of that is, you know, compensating sometimes for like an insecurity. And sometimes it's, you know, you're just trying to uh, you know, be alpha and like engage in masculine. For Josh Metellus, Josh Metellus, it's strategy. It is 100% a chess move. And it's something that he does not because it comes naturally to him, but because it helps him win. But if you watch him in training camp and over the preseason and stuff, if we can watch training camp, that is, uh, he will definitely stand out as somebody who's going to talk. You know, he gets an, he, if he gets a pass breakup, if he gets a big tackle, if he gets a sack on a blitz or whatever, he's going to talk. And that change in mentality is really, really evident when then, you know, it, it comes back and over 2018 and 2019, he puts out these really, really great two years. Suddenly, he's a leader. Suddenly, he's this, like, elder statesman, one article calls him. Uh, of course, I'll link all this stuff in the show notes. Um, but, you know, he he's suddenly uh, this, like, senior leader, really uh, versatile guy over his time in Michigan. They end up asking him to play some nickel, play both safety spots. They ask him to kind of play all over the field. And he learns and he does it and he takes that, you know, humility when, with the coaches and just arrogance when it comes to his opponents. Uh, and he just becomes this guy with the exact attitude that every coach wants in, in every situation you want. Meek when you're supposed to be and loud and boisterous when you're supposed to be. Maybe not meek, but you know, humble, listens to the coaches. And the whole time he's at Michigan, he and his two high school classmates, Devin Gill and Devin Bush, become this like new core of the Michigan defense. And of course, a bunch of that has now been picked clean by NFL teams, as it always is, Uh, you know, with Josh Metellus now going to the Vikings and Devin Bush, of course, going to the Steelers and even Devin Gill going to the University of South Florida to play out his final year. Then, of course, we'll see what happens to him in the next chapter. But that is kind of the the core of Michigan's team. And so that is enough, you know, leadership, that seniority. And honestly, the way that that story manifests itself is one that kind of probably works even more to his advantage than it usually would because of the way that, like, COVID affected the pre-draft process. Of course, we talked about this a ton during draft time, but with no uh, combine and no scouting and, you know, no, like, pro days and none of that stuff, you kind of have a a lot more, you have to rely a lot more on what other people tell you about character. And what the Vikings and Spielman did is they called up everybody's coaches because all those coaches weren't busy with, you know, all the spring practices that had been canceled. So all those coaches had nothing to do but pick up the phone. Uh, And they said, okay, who are your leaders? You know, who are the guys whose work ethics you recommend to us and stuff? And that really greatly affected their uh, draft evaluations. And so that's what brings Josh Metellus onto the team. And so now he joins in a great situation because the Vikings safety room is particularly empty. You've got, of course, Anthony Harris and Harrison Smith. Those are going to be your starters. And then in terms of actual depth, you have Josh Metellus, Brian Cole, two rookies, and maybe Harrison Hand, who is going to be switching positions. All you have to do is not place last among that group. And if Harrison Hand doesn't switch, uh, you know, the Vikings usually roster four safeties. So all you have to do is not be last among those five or uh, not even have Harrison Hand in the group. And there you go. You've made the roster as a draft pick and your career is well on its way. 
So for the rest of this show, I'm going to get into something a little bit more abstract. We're going to do one of these weird June episodes, uh, so I hope you enjoy it. But first, I want to talk to you about Built Bar. It's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Uh, and I, that is a, like a slogan, but it's like true. They're really tasty, uh, and they're not like too sweet. They have a much more like developed, like refined flavor than that. It's very chocolatey. It's very nice. It's, it can be fruity. It can be like nutty. It depends on, you know, what you like. There's all kinds of flavors, all kinds of great stuff to choose from. So if that's the kind of thing that is relevant to you. Oh, and it's like super low in sugar, uh, you know, low calorie kind of thing. It's good for like an after workout protein bar boost. It's good to just get you going in the morning and not hit you in the face with sugar like a cliff bar. So if you're into that, go to builtbar.com. And when you check out, you can enter promo code locked on to save $10 off of your first order. That's promo code locked on to save $10 off of your first order at builtbar.com. In ancient Greece, there was this guy named Epicurus, and he was uh, an, an ancient like scholar and philosopher, and he lived a fairly humble lifestyle. He was, uh, you know, he would eat like very modest lunches with all his students, like out on the grass, and he would enjoy nature, and he didn't live a, a life of like a lot of decadence. He didn't really like that. He thought it was kind of tacky. And that's kind of funny because it's like really ironic that he was that kind of guy because he's largely credited with the spread and development, uh, maybe not the invention, but the development at least of a philosophy called hedonism. And you're probably familiar with the term hedonism as like this kind of decadence, this excess, you know, this idea of like gluttony and kind of a sinful lifestyle. But as an actual philosophy, it wasn't really meant to idealize all of that at all. And it kind of has evolved into that as a term over time and as you know, language evolves. But when it was originally a philosophy, it was a very interesting idea that there are two intrinsic things in the world and everything kind of lies along the spectrum of pleasure and pain. Pleasure inherently good, pain is inherently bad, and everything in the world can be defined as it you know, produces or prevents one of these two things. It's kind of this attempt to reduce and, uh, you know, distill the world down to this very easily accessible and easily consumable spectrum, and you can kind of say, okay, is that thing good or is that thing bad? Well, does it cause pleasure? Does it cause pain? And one of the critiques of hedonism is, you know, the like, uh, well, what about heroin, right? It causes you a lot of pressure, pleasure, but obviously causes a lot of problems. And so there is this idea of like evaluative hedonism and even ethical hedonism, uh, which are along the same lines and we kind of have a similar response to that, which is like, well, it doesn't, right? It, it creates immediate pleasure, but then a lot of long-term pain and therefore it generates more pain than pleasure, therefore drugs bad. And so that's the kind of heuristic along which it can kind of answer a lot of those questions. And what that philosophy kind of leads you to do is to pursue just pleasure and to avoid just pain. And so the detractors of hedonism kind of have this a similar thought process about that than like the drugs thing. They kind of say, well, okay, yeah, sure, it's like, you know, long-term versus short-term, and I get that, like, you have this weird roundabout way of justifying that, but it still is kind of strange that you can kind of indulge, like, base pleasures all day, and of course later people who believed in hedonism would start to abuse it and kind of use it as an excuse to engage in, like, this gluttonous, you know, very decadent, very, uh, you know, ex like, this lifestyle of excess. And so a lot of philosophers over the years would start to kind of take it down and use it as that insult. And that's kind of how we get to the, the linguistic version of hedonism that we talk about today. Now, if you're new to the podcast, by the way, I promise I'm, this is coming back to football. It's all going to relate back. I do this sometimes because I think it's fun to, to take things from other disciplines and kind of apply it to football and help use them to help kind of expand our understanding of football and how things work and kind of use them as analogies and metaphors and stuff. So I promise this is coming back. Don't worry about it. 
But I want to actually highlight one of uh, my favorite hedonism uh, detractors, my favorite critics of he uh, hedonism. And uh, he is somebody that came up with something called the paradox of hedonism. Is this guy named Henry Sidgwick. He was in the 1800s, this Englishman with a horrible beard and a horrible haircut. Uh, and he talked about hedonism as this kind of, he, he found this paradox that I think is largely accepted, at least from the idea of like utilitarianism, which is a, a similar but sort of updated version of this where, you know, it, it should all be about like utility and, and how we use things should all be about like their kind of effects on the world. Um, but it's a little bit more, it, you know, it also acknowledges that, hey, you know, pleasure and pain aren't necessarily this uh, like easy dichotomy that can describe everything. And of course, you know, 1800s philosophy is going to be a little more nuanced than like the ancient Greek stuff, just because we've had so much more time to figure it out and think about it. But Sidgwick's idea of the paradox of hedonism was that if you do pursue just pleasure, and if you, you take this to its logical terminus and say, okay, if pleasure is the thing we should pursue, I'm just going to do the thing that pursues pleasure, you are, by your, by your nature, going to cause pain. And so unless you have perfect omniscient foresight, this isn't a good philosophy to live by. And that's the part I'm going to use. So I want, I'm going to say that again. And it's essentially that you cannot use a, a simplistic hedonistic imperative is the way that a lot of people talk about it. But you can't use this idea of I will pursue pleasure to actually achieve pleasure. And in that, the kind of framework of hedonism falls apart. One more time for the back of the class. You cannot use the logic of pursuit of pleasure to actually achieve the results pleasure. And so that's where the like heroin thing comes in, right? If you pursue pleasure, like by pursuing heroin, you will cause pain. And even though like perfect hedonism would condemn that action, the way that they are setting up their imperative kind of encourages it. And it makes a really big problem with this super reductive idea of the philosophy. I'm going to give you another example, one that's maybe a little bit more family friendly. So imagine a guy, uh, his name is uh, Devin, because there's a couple Devins in the <laughs> Josh Matella story, so the name Devin's in my brain. His name's Devin. He likes to collect stamps. Uh, and if you think about how somebody gets into collecting stamps, they weren't really looking for pleasure when they started collecting stamps. They didn't say, hmm, I'm bored. I would like to feel some pleasure today. I will attempt to collect some stamps, and that will make me feel a lot of pleasure. That's not necessarily the thought process that usually manifests itself in a stamp collecting hobby that makes you really happy. Usually it's it's a practical need, right? You kind of have to get a bunch of stamps because you need to do a bunch of stuff and you realize it's kind of fun that you have all these different kinds and there's a lot of different kinds out there and maybe you Google it and you find out there's all this cool history behind them all and you go, oh, that's kind of fun and then you start collecting stamps. But essentially the argument that Sidgwick made, it makes is that there is there has to be this kind of organic process of discovery when it comes to figuring out what actually brings you pleasure, what actually makes you happy. And if you only pursue pleasure, you're never actually going to find it. And that's the kind of weird, the, the paradox of hedonism is what he called that. If you actually just pursue pleasure, you're never actually going to find pleasure. And that's the thing that the concept that I want to actually relate back to some Viking stuff that I'm going to talk about in the next segment. 
But first, the Locked On Podcast Network stands against racism and social injustice. That's why we, the hosts, are making personal donations to the local and national organizations that are fighting for change. And in the month of June, Locked On is matching the total of all host donations up to an additional $10,000. So to make your own donation along with us, please visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash Black Lives Matter. I also want to talk to you about Rock Auto. Rock Auto is a website, an aggregator for car parts. And, you know, when you have issues with your car and you got to go get a new part for it, usually you're going to go down to some kind of like AutoZone or like an O'Reilly or something, and they probably can charge you out the nose. After all, you can't exactly turn down their service and say, nah, I won't get this part and not fix my car. No, you kind of have to get the part, right? Unless you're going to run around store to store and compare prices, it's going to be really hard to save money doing that. But that is what Rock Auto is for. They have this awesome selection of parts. It's really easy to browse and navigate. I actually looked up... I had a problem, I mean, because of COVID and I'm not driving anywhere, right? Because you can't go anywhere. My car battery actually died. And so when I had to go buy a new one, it cost me like 210, 215 bucks. And I went and looked up after the fact, uh, you know, well, after I'd done that, I was like, ooh, what if I had bought my my battery on Rock Auto? And it was like 150, like it's a huge, huge, huge savings. So if you go to rockauto.com, you can browse through all the parts you need for your car or truck. And I would really appreciate it if you went to their comments and when they ask, hey, how did you hear about us? You tell them that, Locked on sent you. Okay, so what in the world was all that about hedonism? Well, that was a, a loose way of introducing a really cool concept that comes from the Vikings game against the Saints in the playoffs, the wild card game that I wanted to talk to you about today. And this is kind of an old memory I just wanted to reminisce about, uh, but it's a very cool thing that can get us pretty excited about one of the the superstars on the team that's probably going to take an even bigger role here in 2020. And that's Daniel Hunter. So, Daniil Hunter entered that game going up against primarily Ryan Ramchick. He did rush from the inside a bunch. That was also a very famous thing about Mike Zimmer's game plan, but we're going to focus more on the plays where he lined up at five technique, his normal position where he's going up against a tackle, rushing off the edge. Headed into that game, Ryan Ramchek had not given up a sack in the entirety of the 2019 season. He was having an excellent year. I'm pretty sure he made the Pro Bowl, and he definitely deserved to. Uh, so he was a, a pretty intimidating opponent to have to go game plan for. And what Daniel Hunter noticed was that Ryan Ramchek like a good player should, would adapt his game over the course of the game to match what a player, uh, what his opponent is doing. And he would kind of, you know, start to make some changes to counter what they usually see from their opponent. He's good at tape study, and he's good at even live tape study in the middle of a game to kind of try to shut somebody down more and more and more as the game goes on. Now, I'll link the tape of this in the show notes, but here's how Daniil Hunter actually approached that, and I think it's really, really cool. Now, remember the lesson that we took from hedonism, from the detraction of hedonism, and it's that if you just pursue pleasure, you will not find pleasure. And I think there's a similar concept in football. If you just pursue a result, it's going to be really difficult to find that result. You have to pursue the process that leads to the best version of that result. And I know that sounds like you're just pursuing the result on the whole, but I think the distinction is an important and interesting one to make. To give an example, you want to make the ball go very far downfield, right? You want plays that generate a lot of yards, but you can't run four verts every play. You can run four verts a lot more than teams do right now. There's a lot of analytics that four verts is very good and that team should be running it more, but you can't just throw it. You can't be Jeff George, right? You can't just huck it deep every play. Eventually, a team is going to switch to a deep cover four zone and somebody's going to be lurking back there and they're going to pick you off. 
Another similar thing, you know, we think, uh, and I think we're all right when we say, hey, play action is a really good idea, right? Play action is a great thing that lots of teams should do often. Most teams should do more often than they do. But you can't, you couldn't run play action on every single play indiscriminately, right? Because eventually, if you didn't run the ball ever, if, if you ran zero run plays in a whole game and zero non-play action pass plays in a whole game, eventually defenses, and probably after a couple of games of this, right, defenses would catch on and say, oh, wow, they're never going to run. We can just tee off on the pass, and then all you're doing is wasting time faking a run that nobody's falling for. You have to run some amount, and we argue over what that amount should be, and it probably should be lower for most teams, but the idea is you can't just say, oh, well, I'll just run play action every play. I'll just run forwards every play. You have to set it up. You have to approach things in a way that facilitates maximum play action effectiveness. And usually when we're talking about, you know, running the ball, throwing deep, play action, we're usually arguing over what that setup should look like. But you gotta do something. And I think there is a similar setup that happens in this game. And, and you know, Kevin Stefanski also did a lot of great stuff with, with this concept of, you know, kind of taking one look and setting it up with one play and then, uh, you know, taking a similar look even to the first two or three steps of the play. It all looks exactly the same. The defense thinks they know what's gonna happen and then it's this other wrinkle and, and it goes to the end around this time. And then, you know, you got a lot of really great play action stuff uh, and, a, and a lot of great play sequencing moments throughout the 2019 season with this. And I think that's a big part of why he's a head coach in Cleveland now. So what Daniel Hunter did to deal with this problem of a very, very intimidating uh, and, and all-world level tackle uh, across from him in a playoff game is he said, I am going to give up a few. I'm, I'm going to kind of sacrifice a few pawns for the greater good, if that makes sense. And I think that that really engages with that same like utilitarian philosophy of, hey, it's all about the result at the end, right? Now, Daniil Hunter gets two sacks in this game. He actually gets one uh, doing this, and I think that's just kind of in spite of this problem. But what he does is every play, indiscriminately, he runs, he rushes either upfield or to the outside. He never tries to go inside. He never tries. He very rarely tries to bull rush without first going upfield a little bit. And that's pretty classic for Daniil Hunter. He's a quick guy. He's a very fast upfield rusher. So trying to get up and around the bend, he's got good bend. So trying to get up and around the tackle is like not something that's going to raise any alarm bells for Ryan Ramchick. He's not going to see that and think something's up. Up or anything's fishy. To put it another way, if Daniil Hunter just bull rushed every time, that's kind of trying to get that, that direct pleasure, right? You're just saying, oh, I'm just trying to go get a sack every play. And instead, he understands, hey, you know, defensive end gets how many sacks is a good game? Two sacks is a great game for a defensive end, right? If you get two sacks in the same game, three and you're dominating. So that's only two reps. And if you pick your spot and if you set things up in a way where those two reps come in at the best time, then you might kind of be maximizing a little bit more. And on a random second and 10 that ends up being a check down anyways because something else going on in the play, then, you know, if you get beat on that play, that's not a huge deal results wise, but you can maybe use that kind of dynamic that there's only a few plays, you know, you can kind of look at any football game and say, okay, it only came down to, in hindsight, four or five really key pivotal moments. This third down, this big touchdown play, there's this interception. And if you can kind of have your impact be those moments, then you can kind of maximize yourself in that way. So on random second and tens, random first downs, random third and longs that they didn't convert anyways, uh, and really every play throughout the entire game, Daniil Hunter, when he lined up at edge at least, uh, it was different from the interior, but when he lined up at edge, he would run upfield and outside. And Ryan Ramchek, true to his nature, would 
start to kind of uh, cheat outside and he would cheat up field and he would start to get bigger kick steps. And, and this is something he's doing very much on purpose going, oh, he's going outside every play. He must think he can beat me around the edge. If I cheat on this, then I can absolutely, you know, if I start cheating outside, I can just like shut him down. He'll, he'll be a non-factor for the rest of the game. And so Ryan Ramchick falls perfectly into that little trap. And you know where this is headed. And you probably are familiar with this, with where this is headed, especially if you follow me on Twitter at Luke Vaughn NFL, where I, I tweeted this thing out on uh, Sunday night. But there is a point in the game, you'll probably remember a strip sack of D- of Drew Brees that uh, uh, ended a drive that uh, was one of those big, like, Taysom Hill moments. If you remember, Taysom Hill was, like, torching the Vikings at the time, and the, the Saints were driving pretty much unimpeded down the field in the fourth quarter. It looked like they were going to take the lead, and Daniil Hunter chooses that moment in the fourth quarter. It's this pivotal moment. And if it works, this is going to be like the game. And it ends up being the game where he, he jumps outside. And the amount that Ryan Ramchek cheats outside for this is unbelievable. I mean, he is 100% committed to this idea because it's been an entire game. Like, this is not Ryan Ramchek's fault. This is just good game planning. It's been an entire game. If I were Ryan Ramchek and he'd gone out and up the entire game, yeah, I'd be cheating up against it too, and I'd be trying to shut the guy down. I would have no reason to expect something different if he just did this to me on like 45 snaps in a row. So sure enough, Daniil Hunter, he takes the first couple steps outside, gets to Ron Armstead to really, really lunge outside and and upfield and really get himself out of position, and he is just right for a swim move over the top. And Daniil Hunter jumps inside, gets across his face mask, and is basically unimpeded to Drew Brees, chases him down, gets the strip sack, Vikings ball, and that ends up uh, being the kind of tide turner that brings the game to overtime, and of course where the Vikings eventually win the game, it was this like huge giant moment in the whole thing. And that is the value of that sort of paradox of hedonism, where if you don't pursue pleasure directly then you might actually have a a better chance of actually acquiring pressure. And I think there is something to be said for if you don't pursue success directly, but find a smarter, more strategic way to get success, especially in the face of a very, very competent force trying to prevent you from getting success, like Ryan Ramchick, if you don't pursue it directly, you'll have a better chance of getting around it. And really, all this is just an excuse to talk about a really cool Daniil Hunter thing that makes me happy when I think about it. Uh, but I, I still think it's interesting to, t- to think about in general. And sometimes, you know, you don't want to overcomplicate things. And you just want to say, you know, hey, keep it simple, stupid. But I think the idea that, you know, going around and going the long way can sometimes be better is worth our consideration. So that's going to do it for this episode of Locked on Vikings. I will talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. The show is available anytime you find your favorite podcasts or you can ask your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow. And as always, skull.